Well, there are three words in our language that we go to from time to time. I bet you have heard these before from people, and I bet you have probably, in all likelihood, spoken them over somebody. Three words that uh, I know at our house, I follow them up with four other words. I'll tell you about that in a second. But these are the three words, just trust me. Ever heard that? Ever used it? Just trust me. Something about these three words, if Susan had $10,000 for every time I said these to her in 27 years of marriage and followed them up with uh, four other words, it's gonna work out, um, it's gonna be okay, um, she'd, be, she'd be very wealthy, just trust me. Uh, I believe that everybody here has a highly complex nervous system and brain that when you're in an environment, you, you look, you scan the room of the people, you assess the environment and you ask a critical question is it safe? Can you trust the people here? Do they have your good at heart? Can you trust them? There's something in us that wants to know if we can trust other people. God has given you this desire. So when you ask this question, uh, uh, or when you hear someone say, just trust me, you're kind of going off, at least early, you're going on some instinct. You're going on a feel, a gut level type of reaction. Is it safe? You assess a lot of things happening within you, but can you trust this person? Can you, can you be invited in to what they've invited you into? And there's a couple of moves forward, a couple of moves that we can make. One is the move forward. It's to say, hey, I feel like I can trust this person. And if you do move forward with somebody, then what are you doing? You're investing yourself with them. You're investing yourself in them. There's probably that part of you that says that uh, I'll give to them. I will learn to like them. I'll give them energy. I'll give them certainly my time. I'll give them repeated conversations. I'll give them my wallet. I'll give them my heart. I'll trust them. It's safe. I've assessed. It's safe. I'll move forward. There's another type of movement, and it's when you move away. There's something in you that says run or get out or, or don't trust. This isn't safe. There's a gut level. And I bet in the room today, people watching at home, that we have people who would say, hey, my closest relationships, that one person or the two to three people that are closest in my inner circle, it's a good thing. Like when we talk about trust today, preacher, I'm blessed. I've asked the question. I've assessed the environment. I've looked at these people. I've invested in them. They said, just trust me. And so far, they've been proving themselves. Uh, I've been able to trust them. And there are some who say, hey, I can tell you about that relationship. I can tell you about that person or those people where I did invest myself. I said it was safe. They told me, just trust me. And now look, I, I, I look back in retrospect and realize that I shouldn't have trusted them. Now, here's the thing with that. If you think of that relationship or you're there now with somebody or some people, then you likely could have missed some warning signals. You could have, uh, they could have given something off. That highly complex nervous system and brain that you have might have missed something. And you instead, or if you caught something, you, you ignored it and you moved ahead. You said, I deserve to be happy, or this is the exception, or God's watching over me. You told yourself a promise that God didn't make to you, and you invested in somebody or something, and you moved ahead. You ignored the warning signs, or this is kind of scary, but you, there weren't any warning signs. You, you weren't able to detect anything because they tricked you, they hoodwinked you. They just, there was just nothing on the surface and your gut told you the wrong thing. But here's what I want to say today, that you must trust. You must believe in people. If you don't trust and believe in people, then life will be impossible. God has wired you that way to, to be trustworthy, to be not perfect, but to be worthy of trust. 
with a few people in your life and to look and desire to put your trust in other people who themselves will be found worthy uh, in your own life. But we really do need to be careful. Now, you're built to trust. You're built to believe. Without that, without you finding satisfaction, life uh, will be impossible for you in this. Now, the scripture says, we're going to get there in a second. We're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 13, 7. If you just came today, you're like, what's this guy saying? Well, we're walking through line by line the greatest writing ever on love. And it's not romantic love. It's very poetic and very beautiful, but it's not romantic love. It's really a love that says, hey, we need to acquire virtues. We mentioned last week that a lot of us think that, uh, that I'll be more loving if God puts some lovable people in my life. And it just doesn't work that way. But... Paul is writing to the church at Corinth saying you're, you're way worldly, you're envying, there's strife among you, you're not getting this right. And by the way, you need to get love right. As a church, wouldn't you agree, we need to get love right. We can get a lot wrong, but we need to get love right. And so he's writing and saying, um, love does these things. And in verse 7, he says this, it bears all things, love, it is love. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Quick commercial here at Fawner Church next week. We're going to talk about how love endures all things, how love can span the fleeting feelings that we have, how it can go past fads and trends and anything we've known that's temporary and transient. Love endures. God's love endures, and we can possess a love that is enduring. And then we're going to, we're going to turn the page on this series after next week and start something new in the book of Daniel uh, called Thriving in Babylon. And we're going to talk about how do you live in a culture that's squeezing you out? How do you live in a culture that's so uh, radically opposed uh, to the values that you want to hold dear? How do you do that in a way that's, uh, that's, that's joyful and compelling? And how do we walk with humility in the midst of this world? Very, very excited about that. But today, when someone asks you, hey, what was the sermon about? You can say 1 Corinthians 13, that love believes. We're going to pick that part out, believes all things. We're going to say that love trusts, that love always trusts. But before we dive into this, I do want to say that the scripture calls us to be discerning when it comes to trust. When you walk in a room and you assess the environment with the complex equipment that God gave you within, and you ask that crucial question, um, is it safe? S listen, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not because, because people aren't all the same. People are not all the same. I love the rich metaphors from the book of Proverbs. Y'all ever read Proverbs? It's just so good. And here's what he says, uh, two different passages here. Chapter 25 and verse 19, trusting an unreliable person in a difficult time is like a rotten tooth or a faltering foot. Here's another one. Chapter 10 and verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so the slacker is to the one who sends him on an errand. We're talking about vinegar. We're talking about teeth. We're talking about feet. We're talking about smoke in the eyes. Some of y'all were at that bar last night. You know what I'm talking about when we talk about smoke in the eyes. I don't, I don't know where you were last night. I know where you were last summer, but not last night. But go back. Look at this. Trusting an unreliable person, what, in a difficult time. When things are going well, when your team is winning and the line is up and to the right, you don't know who you really are. And you don't know who you're trusting. You don't know who they really are. You reveal your character. Other people's character that you're trusting in, that's revealed when it gets tough. It can be easy when we're winning, but it's hard when people are questioning each other and wondering which way is up. And Scripture is saying, hey, man, that's a rotten tooth or a faltering foot if somebody's unfaithful. Then you go back to what we read secondly, uh, when you send them on an errand. In other words, you gave somebody, you depended on someone, and they dropped the ball. 
So can you, can you trust him? Henry Cloud wrote a book called Trust. I highly, highly recommend it. If y'all know the guy that wrote Boundaries, there's like 50 different takes on the book Boundaries. But he also wrote a book called Trust. It's the science of trust. It really gets deep into how God has wired you. But he talks about three different types of people from the scripture. And he talks about how the scripture gives us the wise person. And the wise person, many times over, we only have 35 minutes total for this sermon, so I can't go uh, all these passages, but I'll share with you one. A wise person is described this way. One who listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. When you shine a light on a wise person and you put a light on them and say, hey, let me tell you something where you're missing it. Let me tell you something you need to work on. Let me give you a blind spot in your life. What does a wise person do? According to the Proverbs in Scripture, the wise person says, ah, thank you. Thank you for shining that light. I'm going to do better. I see it now. I see what you see, and you've helped me. When you shine a light on a wise person, they're glad. They say thank you, and they grow in their wisdom. Not all people are the same. There are fools among us. And let me just quickly say that even among the wise people, we at times can be foolish. I, for one, can have this fool in me. It's bent up in me, and I can make some foolish mistakes. But look at how the Scripture contrasts the foolish person from the wise person. Don't rebuke a mocker. That's a foolish person or a hater. Or he will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and he will love you. When you put a light on the wise person, as we said, they'll thank you. You brought something to their attention. You rebuked them. You gave them a truth that they needed. They'll be joyful and they'll thank you. And you can watch them walk away loving you more, trusting you more, and probably uh, being a better friend to you. But you, by contrast, put a light on the foolish person and what do they do? They lash out. They, they, switch, they put the light back on you. They grab the light. It's like a Gestapo light from the ceiling. They grab the light and put it back on you and go, oh, yeah, 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 well, you. And you see the hatred there. You see the foolishness. It's not a conversation, according to James 3, that's pure and peaceable and open to reason and gentle and all that. It's not a learning environment. The foolish person says, oh, yeah, well, I don't do this. Or let me tell you about you. And they mock and they hate. They act foolishly. But there's another type of person. And I always, I always want those in Christian leadership or moving toward Christian leadership to understand this reality because I've seen it. And some of you, maybe you've seen it and it stays with you. And some of us are naive and we act like it doesn't, like they don't exist. But there are some people and they are the evil doers. The evil person, here's one example. Again, I could give many. The 24th chapter of Proverbs, the first two verses says this. Don't envy what? The evil or desire to be with them. Well, that's not Christian. Yes, it is. For their hearts plan violence and their words stir up trouble. A wise person will listen. A foolish person will struggle with it. But there are some people that are in a whole different category. They're evil people, and they're not going to listen. They plot. When it says they plot, other versions say they devise, they scheme. In other words, they're out to hurt people. They're not out for the good. And I want you to know this, especially any of you aspire to lead in Christian community or any community for that, day, for that reason, but any, one day. But it is, listen, there are people who their intention is to do evil. And there's no reasoning with them. There's no way to pull them in. Then the scripture says, hey, don't deal with them. Titus 3.9, if there's a quarrelsome person, you can't win the argument. They, they're not wise and they've gone beyond foolish into evil. Then you, you walk away. You create a boundary and you don't deal with them. And it's important for us to know that. So we're back now to trust. We're back now to looking at this idea that you must trust. You must believe in people or life will be impossible. 
So let's talk about this reality of what it means to trust and why we should trust. Jesus shares this uh, great story, familiar maybe to all. You don't even have to be a Christian to probably have heard of this story. And Jesus tells of a wealthy father and a, a foolish son. And the foolish son takes his inheritance at an early age. He cashes out early. He doesn't care about the dad. He doesn't care about history, tradition, the family. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to live my life as I want to live it. He cashes out and he goes. I'll put a modern spin on this. He leaves uh, the father's house. He goes to the distant country to Las Vegas. And he's in Las Vegas and you've got the, the, you got the slot machines. You've got the call girls. And no quicker than you can say the word blackjack, this young foolish son is broke. He spent all his money, but that's, it gets his attention. It hurts him, but he stays. He lives in a pigsty. He stays with the animals. I bet you there was some point we began to realize that he'd made a foolish mistake. He began to think, you know, put a little salt on this animal food, this pig food. It's not so bad. A little dab of salt. Maybe I can, maybe I can stay. Maybe I can work this out. And we do that, don't we? When, we've, when we, we're in the distant land, we rationalize and we say, eh, it's not that bad. I don't, because I don't want to, I mean, I was foolish to come. I was foolish to leave. I was foolish to leave my dad, but I, I'll look more foolish if I go back. So I'm just going to stay and put a little salt on this pig's food. And then the scripture gives us what is so beautiful. And I spoke last week in a different way to the people among us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are walking through addiction and recovery programs. It's a reality that I hope everybody has experienced or will experience one day. It's something that spiritual writers talk about. They call it an awakening. And this young man, this foolish son, has an awakening. Here's the father's house. And here's the distant country. And in the distant country, when he'd come at it, to an end of it all, the Bible says in Luke 15 that the son came to his senses. And he comes to his senses and he thinks, I need to go back. But if I go back, he conjectures, I'll be like one of my dad's hired servants. I'll be, uh, I'll be on probation. There will be, uh, to use lawyerly terms, there'll be punitive and compensatory damages. I'll have to earn my way back. And it won't be pretty because I was a favored son but I rejected my father. I spit in his face and lived my way. Remember what 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says? Love does not seek its own. This, this foolish son was seeking his own. And so far away in the distant country, he comes to his senses. And as he began to make his way back to the father's house, I know that he was rehearsing his speech. And he was thinking, at best, I'm going to get a handshake, a guarded handshake from my father, at best. He could reject me. But the scripture tells us in Jesus' story, says that the father sees the son from, a, from far away. And that means, if you put yourself in the, in the shoes, the father was looking for the son. He was looking for the son. He was looking and he was longing and he was hoping because love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so the father sees the son from a distance and what does he do? He, that son's rehearsing and he's feeling down and he's feeling low at the rejection he's brought at the disillusionment and the pain that he's brought to the dad and to his family. But what the scripture tells us, Jesus says, is that he saw him and he had compassion on him. He runs to him. The dad should never have run. Important people don't run. If you're in the room with a, a, a big person, a president, somebody famous, they're, not, they're probably not going to run towards you, okay? I mean, you know, I'm not here to insult you, but they're, they're not going to run to you because important people don't do that. 
But the dad runs to the father and he falls on his neck and he kisses him. And later he gives him a robe and he gives him a ring. We'll come back to that. He says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to eat at Shapley's or, or you know, at Tico Steakhouse tonight. We're going to Kessler Prime, whatever's your favorite. We're going to go. We're going to eat big tonight. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to eat and be merry. We're going to have a party. And here's what I know about everybody that goes to the distant country. Everybody that leaves the father's house. They're running from a God who doesn't exist. They have rejected a God they have created, not the God who's created them. And in Jesus' story, I believe primarily he wants to give us who God is in this story. Sometimes we think God is an unreasonable father. An unreasonable father has a long list and it's tight and constricted. Uh, There's a lot of rules, and it's a narrow way of living. But isn't that antithetical to what Jesus said? Uh, I come, John 10, 10, to give you life, and that your life would be abundant. Your life would be full, and it would be free. That's what I've come for, to give you an abundant life. Not scarcity, not narrow restrictions. Y'all, we're we're getting this religion thing wrong uh, if we think it's joyless. Can I say that? If we're more and more narrow and more and more negative and more and more against everything, like we're, we're getting it wrong. And in the distant country, we can easily think of an unreasonable father, but you've run from a God that doesn't exist. You've rejected a God that you've created, not a God who's created you. Another uh, misconception is an unpleasable father. It's never enough. I got a B, Dad. Why didn't you get an A? I threw an 88-mile-an-hour fastball. I'm, I'm looking in mid to upper 90s. You can never please this father A third component close to the other two is an unmerciful father. He's waiting, he's watching, and he's waiting. He's not scanning the horizon, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. He's waiting and watching for you to slip up so he can send you to hell, like literally. And some people think that that's our God. And so in Jesus' story, he shows us a father who runs, who falls on his neck, really weird cultural things for our times, but he kills the fatty calf and he brings the robe and the ring. And he says, let's have a party. And Jesus wants to take our erroneous, faulty views of God and turn them upside down. And say that our God is joy. Our God parties. Our God is for you. Our God believes in you. Let me stop and ask you, would you do that? You're the prodigal son, but let me just ask you, if you were the dad, would you put a ring on the prodigal son's finger? Would you give the prodigal son power of attorney privileges? Would you put the ring on his finger? Back then, by the way, giving a ring to someone in Jesus' day was not simply a gift. It was a declaration of of sovereign will. It was a gift that said, uh, now you live as a representative of me. I've given you this ring so you will represent me. And by the way, that's the call of everyone who follows Jesus. When you forgive, you can be a priest to someone. When you, when you bring healing, you're a physician to somebody. When you pray for somebody, you're the voice of God, the advocate, the lawyer in their life on their behalf. When you do good, when you love, as we're talking about in this whole series, all we need is love. You are representative. God puts the ring on your finger and says, hey, now you're my representative. And so I ask you, who is it that you need to love? Who do you need to go out of your way to love? You are the prodigal. He has given you the ring. He believes in you. Could you take some of that belief that he has in you and share it with somebody else? That's a a big question today. Can you take the belief that God has put in you and share it 
with somebody else? Who in your life needs to know that you believe in them? Who needs to know? Sometimes I talk with men and they'll just like almost parenthetically go, yeah, well, you know, I, I wasn't big on affirmation. I didn't, really, I didn't really ooh and goo on my kids. And I used to let that slide. And now I'm like, hey, can we, can we talk about that? Why not? Be present. Be for them and let them know that you're for them. Who in your life needs to know that you believe in them? Could you take the belief, the ring that God has given you and wear it as his representative? Somebody once said this. I don't know who to attribute it to. So many people have had different uh, derivatives of this quote. Uh, it's one we'll need to read twice. I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. I'll give you a second. You buy into that? Therapists and counselors in the room would tell you. Here's how the essence of how I would say it, right or wrong, we define ourselves through other people's eyes. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Who needs to know that you believe in them? The gospel frees you to say God believes in you. Wear the ring and let people in your life know that you believe in them. How do you, how do, you do that? Uh, here's a very Jesus-like statement said by a German poet. Treat a man as he appears to be and you make him worse. But treat a man as if he were what he potentially could be and you make him what he should be. That's what love does. The believing and the hoping is not foolishness, but it does see somebody in their potential. So how do you do this? Jesus taught us as he lived. Here's what Jesus said, talking about his very own life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Don't you love someone who's comfortable in their skin? Don't you love someone who's not trying to be somebody else? Don't you love someone who understands God's sovereign will in their life, that no matter what's happening around, like God's in charge? And, uh, and God is in charge. God is sovereign. Now, I'm not saying there's not reason to doubt. I've been in a couple of uh, scenarios this summer. I'm like, Ugh. all right, is God sovereign? He is. He is sovereign. And Jesus says, I lay down my life. And here's what John, the aged apostle, would say after him. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we have come to know love. That love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is how we come to know. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He has given us the ring. He has thrown a party. Now we need to be joy bringers and hope carriers and party animals to other people to see their potential and to call it out. And that's how you do it. How do you lay down your life? I hope, you don't, uh, I hope you're not nailed to a cross. But you are called to take up your cross and daily follow him. You lay down your life by other people by surrendering, by serving, by giving, by forgiving, by um, losing, by deferring. Do you know I've had a couple of points of difficulty in my life over the last couple of years and God has shown me through my wife and the Holy Spirit, both are higher powers uh, in my life. And God has shown me, hey, you can lose. You can lose. You don't have to win. You don't have to win the argument. 
You don't have to prove yourself superior. You can just be there. And that's the way you lay down your life sometimes for people. You defer. God's got it. God's got it. He'll walk you through that difficult. You don't have to speak up. You don't have to defend yourself. God's got it. And that's how you and I, by following the one who gives us the ring and laying down our lives as he laid down our lives, it's really important. Listen, speak life into other people. Speak life. Proverbs 18.1, I don't have it on the screen, but it says, in the tongue there's the power for life or death. That's a big thing. You can speak life into people or you can speak death into people. And people that are close to despair, you know what they do on a pastor's couch or a counselor's couch or with their therapist? You know what they, they, they talk about the words that hurt them the most. They talk about the person who no longer believed in them and they'll recount their words through tears out loud to the point of despair. And you can bring power in your life into the life of other people. Ephesians 4.29, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Did y'all do good with that yesterday watching football? Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Did your coach cuss? Did your players, did you see, did you read lips? What'd you say? What'd you throw? Don't let any unwholesome word, now that's, that's kind of the negative part, but the positive part says, but only that which is good to build up. Like when stuff comes out of you, let it build other people up. Let it build up. Let us speak life. Nathaniel Hawthorne in his autobiography talks about how he went, got, went home one day after he had been fired. That's always hard for anybody. He just got fired. The, And he goes home and his wife, instead of greeting him with added anxiety, she had a joyous spirit. And she said to him, now you can become a writer. She said to him, "Uh, my husband, my man. Y'all listening, aren't you ladies? You listening, Susan? She She said, my husband, my man, there's a genius within him. And she called it out. And he goes, well, we don't have any money. I can't be a writer because I've got to get another job. She goes, hey, I've been saving money. I've got a stash of money from housekeeping. You go be a writer. And we have the scarlet letter and things like this and all the libraries and bookstores because of Nathaniel Hawthorne's writing. Who, and he was strengthened and buoyed from his wife's words and her belief in him. There's a young apologist named Sean McDowell. I highly recommend him to, uh, to read and watch his videos about faith and culture because there's a lot of crazy things going on out there, a lot of different beliefs and all. Uh, but Sean McDowell's brilliant, and he gets it from his father, Josh McDowell, who uh, we used to know back in the day. Sean tells a story of uh, when he uh, was a young, young teenager. Baseball was everything to him. Sports were. It was baseball season. There was a critical moment in a key game where the ball was hit to him. All he had to do was scoop it up from shortstop and throw it over, and the game is won for his team. But he struggled making the play, and because of the struggle to pick the ball up, he made an errant throw, and his team lost. And Sean tells the story about his father being with him post-game. And they go home, and his father was talking about other things. And they went to their mountain home in Julian, and they had lots to talk about. And his dad got out milk and cookies. That was his favorite snack that he would have with his dad when he was a little boy. And his dad brings back the milk and cookies and sits down with him. And Sean, in his writing, I love the way he put this. He said, on that day, I didn't become a more uh, accomplished baseball player, but I became more confident in my dad's love for me. What do you think would get him further? His dad's love speaking life into him. And you and I have that opportunity. As our worship team comes up and we start getting toward uh, close, I want to share with you, um, I want to know that I'm speaking to many of us today. Because the worst thing I want to do is like, love always trust. Woo-woo-woo. 
believe in everybody. You know, go say things that aren't true. And I know it's hard. Look at me. I know it's hard. Like, man, you know, I try not to play this card too often, but follow me around for a week, and I'll show you how people are carrying burdens they're not meant to carry. I've done uh, several funerals uh, lately, uh, five funerals just in the last month. And everybody has been in their 90s, some mid to upper 90s. And they were, they were born in the Great Depression, all of them. In the Great Depression, it was at its worst in 1929 when businesses went belly up, our economy collapsed. There were virtually no economic opportunities. Look at the young people. Like, you're like, yeah, I got two or three more years of college and all these opportunities await. And I hope they do. But they wouldn't have in 1929. And people were concerned. We called it what? The Great Depression. When you look at the scripture, there, my Bible's back there. But you look at the scripture, pretend I'm holding it up. And over and over again, you see the Great Depression. Real quick, because I'm on the clock. David in Psalm 42 and 43, chapter, back to back. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I don't know why right now, but I'm still going to put Why? Because love believes, all, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Same thing in the ch- next chapter. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Different word. Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. How about King Solomon? The last part here. Better is the day of death than the day of one's birth. W- what is that saying? That's a poetic way to say, I don't want to live anymore. Elijah on Mount Carmel. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Susan and I, we think we visited this very site back in 2018. I have had enough. What are you saying, Elijah? He'll be a little bit more clear. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. I don't believe anymore. I don't have any hope anymore. Jonah, and now, Lord, take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Paul would say the one who wrote this letter in 1 Corinthians wrote the second letter to Corinthians. In the first chapter, he said this, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia, not the Asia that you know, Asia Minor was different. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. America, the history books tell us, got out of the Great Depression largely under the leadership of FDR, who instituted what was called the New Deal. But your Great Depression, the part of you that doesn't want to hope and be and bear and believe and endure, the part that wants to get up, God in Jesus has given us not a New Deal, but a new covenant. And here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new deal, a new covenant, a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. He's writing to people from Jewish people that understand all these metaphors. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. You were in the distant country. You rejected the Father, but he's called you home and he wants to party. Let us hold to the confession of hope without wavering since he promised that he is faithful. In that same chapter, I don't have it up, but look at it if you 
want to. In verse uh, chapter 10, it goes on to say, Therefore let us, let us speak life into each other. Let us provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves. Let's get together and let's believe in one another. Let's believe in the work of God in each other's lives. Because the, the, these people, the Hebrew people at the time, they were wanting to shrink back in difficulty. And he's saying, draw near in faith. And the greatest way, as we're talking about this today, that we can show love for one another is when you see someone shrinking back in difficulty, let's call him to draw near in faith. Let's see the potential and call that out in him. Would you stand? I want to close with these two questions. What can you, I'm sorry, who can you love by believing in them? Who do you know who's shrinking back in difficulty rather than drawing near in faith? You're standing. Let's all sing as Lord and the team lead us. And uh, we would love to pray for you today or the altar is open if you want to come pray or be prayed for. Let's be obedient in these few moments and we will get you out of here on time.